15, verse 19. We're in the last couple of verses of this chapter. We'll see how far through we get. Verse 19, it says, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, dear Lord God, thank you for this evening. Lord, thank you for the book. Uh, Lord, let's pray that uh, you testify out of it here tonight, God. And Lord, show us uh, great and mighty things that you have in store. Uh, Lord, uh, I'm thankful that uh, we're on the right side of this. Uh, Lord, uh, it's just the, the way the world is makes you feel like you're on the wrong side of a lot of things. It's nice to know that uh, based on the book, we're on your side, we're on the right side. And so, Lord, I just pray that you be with your people here tonight. Encourage them, lift them up. Uh, Lord, uh, fill them with your spirit. Give them boldness. And, Lord, I pray that as we go throughout the week, you give us fruit for our labor, God. And it'll be fruit, to your, uh, fruit for your account, God. These things we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So, obviously, what we're looking at here is Second Advent references. So, these are going to be uh, uh, very vivid passages of Scripture, what you're seeing there. Uh, if you will go over and look at Isaiah chapter 63, uh, Isaiah chapter 63, uh, the first four verses and, fir- and verse 6, along with it, uh, are companion verses to this event that's going on right here in Revelation chapter 14, verse 19. Uh, let's see. All right, Isaiah chapter 63, towards the end of the chapter here, verse 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom? Uh, I think one of the things that gets missed sometimes, or we don't, we don't really do, but if you, uh, in your Bible in the back, usually you have a set of maps uh, that show you some places. And, uh, you know, you, you grow up kind of learning, you know, United States geography a little bit and where the Civil War was fought and where different battles took place. And you can kind of go and visit some of those places. I remember as a kid, we'd go and, uh, see some Civil War reenactments and things like that. And uh, oh, I forget where it is, not very far from here. Right around, you, know, you can go and see where General John J. Pershing grew up. And you can still see some, some old places around. Where is it? Laclede. Laclede, the big metropolis of Laclede. I always get cracked up because there's a commercial that comes on. I guess there's like a mattress factory or somewhere. And it says in downtown Laclede. I'm like, downtown? <laughs> Laclede doesn't have a downtown. <laughs> if you've seen one part of Laclede, you've seen the whole thing. But, uh, but anyway, uh, you know, there's the, the, the importance is, is that uh, everything that's really important is going on over there in the Middle East. Uh, you can get sidetracked thinking that, well, you know, uh, they're making this decision or that decision over in Washington, D.C. or down in Jeff City and Boy, that must mean that we're really close to the rapture. Man, what's going on in Washington, D.C. doesn't amount to a hill of beans to the Lord. I mean, except where it comes to uh, if you, you know, in terms of the promise that he gave uh, over there in the book of Genesis where he's talking to Abraham, he said, if uh, them that bless thee, I will bless, and them that curse thee, I'll curse, and in thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Uh, So the decisions that are made in Washington uh, where they concern Israel impact you, uh, and the Lord is concerned about that. Uh, but outside of that, uh, the really important events that are going to happen in history or that have happened in history or that will happen in the future uh, all take place over there in the maps that are in the back of your Bible. And so it says, who is he, who is this that cometh from Edom? Uh, and if you want to know where that is, that's south of the Dead Sea. South of the Dead Sea. Um, so... Uh, 
it's always been interesting to me. I'm sorry I'm, I'm kind of rabbit traily tonight. But uh, if you look at a map of the Dead Sea, and I can't draw it for you, but uh, it has a uh, kind of a hook at the bottom of it. And right inside that little hooked end of, of the Sea of Galilee, or sorry, the, the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea, you'll notice on the, on the east side, right? Notice how it's, it kind of comes down along the east side, and then it cuts in a little bit, and then it goes back out, right? If you've got a map of the Dead Sea, I don't know if you can see that. Uh, but the amazing thing to me about that is that uh, that's where the city of Zoar is. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that's or where the city of Zoar was. And you say, well, what's significant about Zoar? Zoar is where Lot and his daughters fled to. And he wasn't supposed to go there, but he spares Lot. And because he goes to Zoar, Zoar, that area gets spared. When you could see where it should have all been demolished. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And uh, so, so anyway, like the whole thing is just, when you look at Sodom and Gomorrah were in that southern part of the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea, and it was literally pulverized. Do you see the little cut in? Yep. And, and so that's where Zoar was. Now, I'll I just show you that because if you, uh, in the, I think, oh, Rick can probably see it if he's looking at the same map I'm looking at, uh, just south of it. Uh, you might see a little city, a little town called Bozrah. You see it on your map there? All right. It says, Who is he that cometh from Edom, that's south of the Dead Sea? Notice this, with dyed garments from Bozrah. All right. So that's an actual place, right? It's not a hypothetical. It's not uh, um, an allegory. Uh, it's not poetic. It's a real place. All right. That Bozrah south of the Dead Sea. Uh, it says, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in his strength. And so that's a question. And so the answer, uh, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So he asks a question, but he asks about himself. He says, who is this that comes with dyed garments from, you know, comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? And he says, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Question. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel? So it sounds like it's a conversation between two individuals, right? Notice that then it starts off with a question again. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth the wine fat? He said, you know, where are you coming from that your clothes are all red? And they look like, uh, you look, I'm looking at the bottom of your clothes, and it looks like you've, uh, it looks like you've been, you know, stomping over in the wine press. You got... Uh, the bottom of your garments are all dyed, right? They're all stained at the bottom. And notice what he says. There's a response. I have trodden the wine press. All right? Well, that takes you over to what you just read in Revelation chapter 14, just a little bit. Actually, not what you read, but close to it. Uh, Revelation chapter 14, verse 20. Revelation 14, 20. And the wine press was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the wine press, even unto the horses' bridles, uh, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Go ahead. Is that the same reference to Let me get over to Revelation 19.13. I, uh, I would assume yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, that treadeth the wine press. Yeah, that's Revelation chapter 19. Yeah, Revelation chapter 19, verse 13. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. That's the wine press. 
and his name is called the Word of God. All right, so those are, those are the same references. Though he's using the word winepress, though, uh, and that's, you know, and, and I'm trying to think of the, it's what the oh, literary term for, you know, he's calling it a winepress. Literally, he's, it's, not, it's not wine and it's not grapes. It's people. Uh, but he's making a simile. All right, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. Uh, that gives you the impression that although there's a great battle taking place and you're going to be there as part of his army, there's parts of it, at the very least, at least this part, that you don't take any part in it at all. I think that you're probably standing up along the hillsides watching it happen. I don't know. One of my favorite movies growing up was, uh, was Quigley Down Under. I don't, know, I don't know how many people remember that movie or not. At the very end of the movie, you know, these, uh, I think it's the Redcoats come in and they're getting ready to, you know, haul Quigley off. You know, this is all happening down in Australia. And then all of a sudden, you know, they hear this uh, drumming. And they look up, and on all the hillsides all around them was just thousands upon thousands of aborigines that were there. Like, you take him, you're going to have to go through us. And, uh, you know, but here's the thing. <laughs> you're going to be surrounding, watching that scene, but uh, there's nobody going to be, you're not going to be saying, if you're going to get to him, you're going to have to go through us. If anybody wants to get to us, they've got to go through him. And uh, he doesn't have to worry about anything. He's got it. Right? He goes through that thing alone. There was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I will tread down, uh, this is around verse 6, and I will tread down the people of mine anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. That's kind of a, a sarcasm thing there. And make them drunk in my fury. They like to get drunk, do they? Right? Because if you remember from last week, some of the references, you know what they're doing during the tribulation? Uh, you've got Jezebel, and it's a religious worship, and what are they doing? They're drinking the blood of the saints. And they're interested in getting drunk on stuff. He says, you want to get drunk, do you? I'm going to make you drunk. Uh, you're going to get drunk on my fury. And so he uses their own desire and their own phrase against them. And I will bring down their strength to the earth. Uh, there are some things that you've got to understand about your Savior that make him mad, that make him furious. Now, you, you, the same Lord that you serve right now is that same Savior that still thinks this way about things. So if you understand nothing else about the Lord right now, you ought to understand his long-suffering. Because he feels every bit this way right now, and he lets it go. And he lets it go, and he lets it go, because he knows what he's going to do. He knows what's coming. He knows what he's prepared to do. And he says, I'll wait, and I'll wait, but man, whenever it comes time, he said, I'm not holding back. Your Savior has the complete range of emotions. Every emotion that you've got, he's got. The difference between you and him is that he has them perfectly, and he has them righteously, and he has them about the right thing, and he has them absolute and completely. He's furious about the right things. You get furious about silly things, stupid things. You get furious about the wrong things. I'm not saying you never get mad at the right thing. I'm just saying we're fallible people, and we get upset about the wrong stuff sometimes, don't we? You ever been furious and then find out you were wrong? It's happened to me more than, time, more than I'd like to talk about. 
Man, nothing worse than being furious and then somebody come up and correct him. Like, actually, you know, I know you're real upset, but, uh, you know, they didn't do what you think that they did. <laughs> you're like, oh, you're just so full blown into that fury and that anger and you just want to, you know, let loose. And then you find out you're, you've directed it the wrong way. The Lord's never directed his fury in the wrong place. What, what, you've, what the world has right now is the Lord's long-suffering and mercy. You know, so what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And the, the world deserves that right there. And the people that are in that spot in front of him deserve what's coming to them. And you say, well, that's an awfully hard way to be. No, I'm not way about myself, too. I deserve hell. It's by God's grace I don't have to go there. It's not because I don't deserve to go. I absolutely deserve to go. He went and he didn't deserve to go. He went for me. But I'll tell you what, I'll take it. You know, uh, that's a, one of the things about the Lord is that uh, in the same breath, I can say the Lord is, is fair. What he does here is fair. You know what the, what is the, people get all upset about the Lord. And man, I don't understand how a good God could let something like that go on, right? You hear stuff, hear talk like that. You know, here's the problem is that the Lord is fair and he's unfair. You say, how is he fair and he's unfair? He's fair in his fury. You know, when, you know where he's unfair at? He's unfair in his grace. I don't deserve his grace. That's unfair. Anybody that gets his fury deserves it. No, no, that, but that's what I'm saying. He's unfair in his grace. That grace was unfair. It was unfair that he had to take my place. It was unfair he had to go to hell. It's unfair that I get to go to heaven. There's all kinds of unfair things, but whenever it comes to his fury, he's absolutely right. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. Well, and and I think the a complete answer is you know people say well how could a good God let that happen? Here's the thing: God doesn't. In, in terms of bad things happening, nothing is let. Meaning that nothing happens as bad or as wicked as it is. Let's say somebody. I don't, I don't want to be like overly crude here. Let's say somebody does about the worst thing that you can imagine. And boy, I can imagine some bad things. And they get away with it. And they're never punished for it. And they go on and they live a long life. And you say, well, they got away with it. No, they didn't. Because, listen, there's two judgments. <laughs> there's, a, there's a judgment seat of Christ. And let's say that that person got saved. I guarantee it gets taken care of there. And if they don't get saved, there's a great white throne seat judgment and it'll get taken care of there. Every right, or every, sorry, every wrong will be righted. The Lord doesn't let anything happen that he doesn't correct, that he doesn't fix. I always, when people say that, I always say, when they say, what, why would God allow this to happen? Or, you know, why would he do that or whatever? I always say, um, what did, I don't ask that question. What I ask is, what did God do to overcome this? Right. And that is he sent his son, Jesus. Sure. Well, and, and you can go, there's a lot of different directions you can take the question. The, the truth is, is that the, the, the way the world has gone right now, uh, he, the, the world doesn't want God in anything. So you wonder how, you know, listen, a lot of the stuff that's going on wouldn't happen if you had Jesus Christ there, right? But you've done kicked, you wonder why, why does this wicked stuff go on 
here or there or this other place. Well, you look at all the places where a lot of that wickedness happens. And a lot of, them, a lot of those places have kicked Christ right out of there. You wonder why he's not there. You don't want him there. Yeah. You know, so why does, you know, um, I forget who I was, I was talking with a teacher today. I'm trying to remember what he was, what he was talking about. Oh, gosh, it's, it's, uh, it's lost me now. Um, but uh, my response to him was this. I said, the, the problem is, is uh, oh, he was talking about out in California. And he was uh, talking about uh, in Washington State. He said, in Washington State, this is what he told me. So I'd, this isn't news that I've verified. But he said, in Washington State, they have just legalized. All drugs are legal in Washington State. Every, heroin, meth. All of it's legal. It's all legal. They said you could have somebody shooting up outside of, a, outside of an elementary school and you can't do a thing about it. Uh, hold on a sec. And, um, you know, I think they said that, uh, oh, I think it was like it's getting so bad in San Francisco, the targets, they've got to have, if you want to, everything in the store is behind glass because of just the shoplifting is so bad. And my response to him is this. It says, um, you know, you try to look for the root cause of all of that mess, and you look at the places where you're talking about what what is their faith? Well, their faith it's it's atheism, and you look at the end result of atheism. What is the end result of atheism? Well, it's me and mine, me and mine before you and yours, and I'm going to get whatever I can get for myself, and I'm going to please myself. I'm going to take care of myself. Uh, if I can get it and not pay for it, I'm going to take it, and that that's just how it is, and I. And he said, yeah, he said, you know, and, and I didn't even necessarily break it down to Christianity, although we can stand here and say that without Christ, there's morality makes zero sense outside of Christ. Without eternal consequences, morality makes absolutely no sense at all. You know what makes sense? Man, just go and steal whatever you can get your hands on. And you know what? And then, and, but then be ready to defend it. You're going to have to, I mean, that's the thing is that you can take whatever you want, but you better be ready to kill to keep it because somebody will kill you to take it, and that'll be the world. You know, the old man, uh, the old preacher said this, and no, I don't know that very many people listened to him at the time because uh, it was just kind of a catchphrase, and nobody really saw it, but uh, it's this. And I don't know that he coined it, but I certainly heard it from him. Back to the Bible or back to the jungle. And you know what the rule of the jungle is? <laughs> Kill or be killed. Survival of the fittest, absolutely. And what separates you from the animals? Well, I'll tell you what, atheism takes you right back. Takes you right back to the jungle. You want to live in a civilized society, you can't do it without the Bible. Well, that's, a long, that's a long ways from where we are in this text. But I'm going to tell you what, you're, you say, man, what, you know, can we get it turned around? Listen, you're headed straight into it. You're headed straight into what you're reading there. And that's, that's where it's going. I'm not telling you I'm excited about it. I think that uh, you ought to pray for revival. But let's keep, let's keep the order right here, and let's keep your expectations reasonable. I, I train kids to run track, okay? And so you know what I have to tell a high school kid? Listen, I'm all for you hitting a PR, but let's keep, let's keep your abilities in check. You're probably not going to run a three-minute mile, Okay? Let's do what you can do. Okay, so let's talk about, let's talk, you know, you want revival? Okay, why don't you get revival in your heart? Why don't you go home tonight and pray that you be revived? 
Okay? And you say, okay, man, I got it, man. I'm revived. I'm on fire for the Lord. I'm leading souls to Christ. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm practicing specials. I'm doing the whole thing, and I'm excited. I mean, it's not just a duty. It's not just an act. It's not just putting it on. I'm excited about what the Lord is doing. I'm on fire. Man, I'm, I'm good to go. And you say, what can I do after that? Pray for revival in your home. Pray your kids get right. Pray your husband or wife gets right. Pray your family gets right. Pray your friends get right. Man, see a revival in, in your little circle. And man, pray the revival sweeps through your church. And then pray revival sweep, sweeps through the town, through your community, through your county. Man, pray for revival there. I think if you do that, your expectation is set and you've got a reasonable expectation. I think that you've got an unreasonable expectation if you say, boy, Lord, I pray that you bring a revival back to the United States. I think that you're... Well, let, let's start with what you can do because there's a lot that you can't do. And you can pray for that. I'm all for you praying for it. But, man, pray for, pray for something where you're going to see some results that are going to be a benefit to you. And just know that the direction that the world is headed is headed towards getting you out of here. You know, I hear Dad talking about uh, Israel passing a law to get rid of all the Christians speaking. I think, man, getting... They're getting close to receiving an antichrist. I know that it gets. I know that it sounds backwards, and it's like you know, uh, getting excited for a for a blizzard, you know. But that that's kind of the the messed up mind I have, you know. I just ever since I was a kid, there's something about whenever you're in a public school and you and you grew up with snow days that just had you praying for bad weather, and that's messed me up. <laughs> And so I get reading my Bible, and then I see the news, and oh, man, it's getting worse. Getting close to getting out of here. It's going to get exciting. <laughs> and then you get kids, you're like, well, I'm not too excited about that. You know, I'm not excited for what they've got to go through. I hope the Lord gets us out of here real quick, Amen. right? Because I've got kids. If it was just me, man, let it, let it go. You know, I take care of myself. But, man, you get a wife and kids. You get a family, and you're trying to protect them. And it gets harder and harder and harder and harder to do. And uh, the influences come from every single direction. And uh, so pray that the Lord take us out of here tonight. You know, we want to pray. That's, <laughs> that'll be some real revival, won't it? All right. Uh, but this passage that we've read, uh, back over here in Isaiah uh, 63, uh, there's no doubt in that passage at all. Uh, I'll tell you what, that's not a loving, kindly, heavenly Savior who comes saying, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is a roaring lion uh, coming for vengeance who stamps on his enemies until their blood is splashed all over his clothes. That scene is R-rated, folks, for gore and violence. That is a bloody mess. And he's right. That's something you need to understand about the Lord. Is that uh, as much as you've got a Lord that, uh, that let the children come sit on his lap, and said, Come unto me, all ye that are burdened and heavy laden, and I shall give you rest, is the same Jesus Christ that uh, got so sick and tired of people trying to uh, you know, sell, uh, sell stuff in the temple there. He drove them out with a bullwhip and kicked over the money-changing tables. This is a, a Christ of love who would weep with them that wept and rejoice with them that rejoiced and kick over a table um, you know, and, and run somebody off. And one of these days you're going to see a Jesus Christ who's upset. I don't know if you ever get around somebody like that, um, that, uh, you know, just 
you watch, always watch out for those quiet folks, right? Those people who are always kind of meek and mild-mannered, and then whenever they get mad. Don't, you ever been scared by somebody who's just normally pretty even-keeled, and then they get mad? You're like, oh my, I didn't know they could get mad. And then whenever they got mad, you didn't know how far they would go. It was scary. That's the Lord, right? Because most of the time, the Lord is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, meekness, temperance. And one of these days, the Lord's going to let loose, and you're going to be watching on, man, I am glad I am not on that side. I mean, I was, uh, this was a couple years ago, uh, <laughs> there was a, a principal and a vice principal uh, got into it in the hallways, I mean, shouting, yelling at each other. And I was like, man, I'm glad, because I, I knew the principal, and I, he's a good man. I was like, man, I'm glad he's not yelling at me. You're going, to see, you're going to be standing there at the second advent saying, man, I'm glad I'm not on that side. Those folks should have got right. Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 30 says, Therefore prophesy thou against them all these words, and say unto them, The Lord shall roar. There goes uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, the Lord shall roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon his habitation, he shall give a shout, and they shall tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. I mean, you know, Jesus Christ, meek and mild, I mean, and when he raises his voice, that's quite a thing. I don't know that often people really stop to consider uh, just, uh, just how much of a man Jesus Christ was. They always make him about 120 pounds soaking wet up on the cross and just, you know, I know the Bible says his ribs looked out over him, but that's because they ripped the flesh off of him, not because he didn't eat anything. And uh, whenever, he was, whenever he would preach to the 5,000, I don't know if you think about this, he didn't have a PA system. You know how hard it is to preach in the open air? If you never preached in the open air, you don't know, but to project your voice and have... 5,000 some odd people hear you? I'll tell you just sometimes in this room, <laughs> some of you will get talking amongst yourselves. And I've got to speak up a little bit to kind of get over it a little bit. And that's 30 people in a closed space. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ? There's 5,000 people out there, and he's got to get everybody's attention because you know there's a whole bunch of women and children out there and men chatting it up. You know, they're waiting for the whole thing to start. Hey! <laughs> And then he goes and he starts preaching. You think he preached like he, you know, like he was standing there talking to you? I doubt it. Man, I bet some of those sermons that you're reading in your Bible were shouted for them to be heard. I think sometimes you miss the inflection and the tone with which he said some stuff. And here in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 30, he roars. He shouts. He's going to make himself heard. Uh, Brother Rod mentioned Revelation chapter 19, verse 13. We'll add to that verse 15. Revelation 19, 13, and 15, it says, He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth, that stomp down and walk on, the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. That's quite a sight, folks. All right, and that's Revelation chapter 14, verse 19, verse 20. says, And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse's bridle, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Obviously, it's not 
uh, a wine press like you would have seen. The wine press, it, the wine press was a big tank that had spouts on the side. And it'd be pretty large. You could get a few people in there. I think the, the description I uh, uh, read compared it to uh, a very, very, it, the shape would have been like a, um, an angel food pan, an angel food cake pan, right? Uh, so it, it, it came up in the middle, but you would march around it, and it would have spouts along the outside every so often with a bucket underneath. And as that grape juice uh, began to, you know, you'd get your pulp, and then the juice would come out the little spouts and they'd fill up uh, some leather, uh, leather pouches. Well, obviously, you're not getting, a, uh, you know, getting several million or several hundred thousand people in a bowl. That bowl is a valley. It's the Valley of Megiddo. That's the reason they call it Armageddon, because it takes place in the Valley of Megiddo. And so that's where the name comes from. It doesn't come from, you know, a 1990-something movie with, you know, Bruce Willis trying to save the world from an asteroid. Okay. Uh, notice that, um, that this is outside Jerusalem, without the gate or without the camp. That's Hebrews 13. Uh, and we can get all together here and see what these verses teach. And they present a picture so horrible and so bloody that preachers in mass have finally rejected the literal interpretation of the book of Revelation because of it. They said it all has to be either in the past or it's uh, just spiritual, right? This all happened spiritually or it happened way back in 70 AD, but it's certainly not going to happen in the future. Not my Jesus, not my loving teddy bear Jesus. He wouldn't do anything like that. Go ahead. Didn't happen. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so a lot of them just ignore it flat altogether. They just they just don't talk about it. You know. I mean, that's just you know can't. Yeah. We don't know. It's it's um, a lot of people that I run into. You, you start mentioning studying the Book of Revelation, and then they they just turn their head from you and say, "Oh, you can't understand that. That's all just an allegory." Right, they they and and you're right, but they don't spend any time to even think about it or even consider it. They they stick to the nice and easy parts. They they like the Sermon on the Mount, right? And that's that's the Jesus that they like. And so I mean, I'm telling you what. Whenever I was down in Bolivar, it seemed like every church I visited, it was just like week after week after week. It was a Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes. So that's all they knew, right? That's the only Jesus that they could preach. Because it was just a, a kind Jesus, you know, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth and all this. I mean, they, they couldn't tell you anything else. I mean, they weren't going to take you, they weren't going to take you to a bullwhip Jesus. They weren't, they'd take you over to the cross. They'd give you that. They'd take you over to, to Peter, you know, Peter, do you love me? And, and then they'll bring out their, oh, okay, well, he said phileo love here and he said agape love over here. And just, it's just a bunch of garbage. And it doesn't amount to anything, and that's all you'd ever get. I mean, I got so sick of it, I'll be honest, I got backslidden because I couldn't find a good church where I could get fed. So I just was like, man, I'd rather starve to death than, than choke on poison. Mm -hmm. And I finally, you know, I found something halfway decent and then ended up going to Bible school. But that's, that's all I could get out of a Southern Baptist church down in Bolivar. And uh, so anyway... Uh, but, but they don't like this scene, and so they just don't talk about it. 
They either spiritualize it, put it in the past, or they get rid of it altogether. And they portray a Christ so foreign to the concept, uh, this passage does, uh, concept to the modern milk-toast age of ecclesiastical communism and liberal ecumenism uh, that the modern minister can't stomach the Bible presentation. Well, I mean, let's be honest for a second. You look at what they've done just to the cross. You look at the average depiction of Jesus Christ on the cross, and he's got, you know, he's got like this little stream of blood coming out of his side, you know, a couple of little streams of blood coming off of his head. I mean, it's a bloodless crucifixion. I'm not telling you that you've got to get gory necessarily, but it was. It was horrific. It says he was beaten, he was marred more than any other man is what the Bible says. Well, that's quite a statement, isn't it? Marred more than any other man? So much so that you couldn't even tell that he was a man? That's pretty bloody. That's pretty horrific. And this, this is something else. They did that to Jesus. I, I don't know if I can put it this way. Jesus does his comeuppance at the second advent. <laughs> said, this is how you treated me whenever I came. This is what it's like whenever I come. <laughs> you know. Uh, the Bible picture here, it's so terrible in its implication that it'll freeze your blood in your veins if you look at it literally. I mean, one of these days you'll see it, but that's exactly how we Bible-believing Christians are going to take it. The passage the passages that deal with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, never deal with the, uh, the times of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, hearken to a little child. Fain would I to thee be brought, gracious Lord, forbid it not. You know, it's just this. And I'm not saying that Jesus isn't, you know, uh, balanced. But boy, you've got to get the other side too. These things are all true of his first coming as the Lamb of God, which take, taketh away the sin of the world. But his second coming is something else. Uh, the book of Joel calls it a day of darkness. Uh, the day of gloominess is what it says. A day of clouds and thick darkness. There's nothing positive about the description of the second coming. It's a, it's a dark mess. Joel chapter 1 verse 15. Alas for the, for the day. For the day of the Lord is at hand. And as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. It's deserved, and if you and when you're there, you'll say amen. But in terms of the violence and the blood and the gore, there won't there there has never been a scene throughout history in movie or television or in reality that could ever match it. And I'll tell you what, Hollywood is Hollywood has tried. They ain't come close to this. This great tremendous negative preaching, which makes up more than half of the word of God is rejected by most preachers today because they're in sympathy with the people against whom the verses are aimed. I don't know if you, I mean, I'm sure you noticed this. We've, stand, we've stood around and talked. It's amazing to me how backwards the world has gotten. Um, I don't know, I was watching part of an interview, um, and they were talking about the, the it thing that broke into the Christian school and killed three kids. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was a, a girl trying to be a man or a man trying to be a girl. I never did get that all straightened out. Um, they couldn't get it straightened out. I don't know how they expect me to. But, um, and the guy that they were on this panel was basically slamming everybody for misgendering the murderer. Whatever it was, 
was a victim because it got, no, no, it was a victim by the media for misgendering, you know, like, hey, we need to, we need to correct the statement here of she or he or it or whatever it was, you know, it's all, this is after the whole thing has happened, right? They're not saying it happened because it got misgendered. They're saying, well, it's a crime that this person, after they committed this horrible, horrible act, got misgendered. Uh, I praise the Lord, somebody up there and said, you mean the murderer? I don't think I care about what that person's pronouns were because they're a murderer. But you live in a world so twisted and so messed up that it cares more about somebody's pronouns than it cares about their character or their actions. And you got the same thing in pulpits today. They are in sympathy for anybody that is on the, on the, side, on the receiving end of violence. Well, I'll tell you what, some people deserve to be on the receiving end of violence. <laughs> the people here on the, other, on the other side of the word of the sword of the Lord, they deserve to be there. And, but you've you got people that won't preach it because they sympathize and they empathize with those that are going to be turned into gush. <laughs> the word of God is a righteous judge. Nahum chapter, well, we better stop there. We'll stop there for tonight. We'll get into Nahum chapter 1, verse 2 through 6 next time. All right. We'll close out and go do some praying.